Thank you, Brenda and Jamie. We'll be preaching this morning from Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16 will be a familiar parable. I want to look at this parable for several different reasons this morning. Luke chapter 16. We'll begin in verse 19. And while you're turning, just a couple of things I want to call to your attention of things that are coming up. Uh, first of all, throughout the scripture, summertime is mentioned being a time of opportunity, opportunity to serve, an opportunity to take advantage of the time you have to do things important. And it's pretty obvious, uh, several people have brought to my attention, your pastor has just totally forgotten about an important opportunity through summer, and we're going to try to take an advantage of that before September is over, and that is the fact summer has come and summer is gone. And we have yet to meet in the fellowship hall for homemade ice cream. <laughs> so to remedy this situation, I thought, well, why don't we make the announcement and next Sunday night we can have homemade ice cream in the fellowship hall. After all, we do have a reason to celebrate next Sunday is Brother Jeremy's first Sunday as being full time here. So I thought, what, what a better time for a party. But alas, it was called to my attention. It's Labor Day weekend. Some people may be gone. So therefore, two weeks from tonight, what do you say? Let's have homemade ice cream in the fellowship hall. It's not the first day of fall yet, so we technically get it in before summer's over. So we'll be giving you more updates next week, those of you who are in town. I know it's Labor Day weekend. Some of you will leave town, perhaps, and uh, we want you to be safe while you're on the road taking care advantage of that last little glimpse of summer freedom before school starts in earnest. Also, I want to mention, of course, tonight, we have uh, got a little brief mention in the bulletin. We're going to look at reallocating some of our mission money. And I did talk to the missions department concerning these two projects that are not busy. And we do have uh, some, some needs. Let me mention, of course, Brother Stan Scroggins called me actually before he resigned to tell me what's going on. Uh, he's been, of course, Minister of uh, Music and missions there at First Baptist in Magnolia for 25 years. Before he went to Magnolia, he actually applied for mission status to go to the Philippines, and there was no money and no mechanism in place to put him on the field, but on that advisory committee was Brother David Watkins, and that's how they got together, and he ended up at First Baptist Church. Well, in his time with First Baptist Church, throughout the, the uh, 25 years he's been there, uh, he and Donna both have become very well equipped for the ministry that uh, they'll be called into. It'll be an educational ministry and also a support ministry for the school. He has a master's degree in religious education. He also, of course, has his music education. Donna has a degree in teaching, but she also has a degree in uh, nursing. And uh, both of these are coming together. And we're going to look at, of course, his mission statement tonight. And he called me and said he needed some partnering churches uh, as he goes on the field. And I was talking to someone from First Baptist, one of the leaders from within the church, and they told me this. You won't find a harder working missionary than Stan Scroggins because he works hard and they can see it, of course, up at uh, First Baptist. I would like for us to consider reallocating some of our mission money to him. And then there was another project that was going out, and it was called to my attention as we were discussing the shelving units that uh, our crew put in up there at, uh, at the Call Mall. 
that the, uh, the call of Columbia County really has no funding except for maybe one church and some individuals. And they need some, some regular funding. We're already involved with the call very closely because they use our facilities for their training. I think if, if, if we're going to be that closely affiliated with them, it would be a good thing for us to offer them some monthly support. So we're going to be looking at that, and those are the two things that you have. And just a little bit of uh, uh, detail and fill you in on the behind the scenes of what's going on at reallocating this. These two projects that I spoke to you about that we'll be reallocating money from, they're not as busy as they have been before, and they were forthright with me at the missions department and said that if we choose to reallocate money, that it would not put anybody in a hardship on these two projects. Also, you notice something interesting. I received a phone call this week from a pastor in Kenya, Africa. I at first thought it was one of these uh, Publishers clearinghouse sweepstakes scams because first of all it was too long between the time I said hello and this man started talking But that's the way it is when you call from Africa And let me tell you if I answer the phone and more than two seconds pass before someone says anything I think it's a sales call because it popped up unknown number on my phone Well he introduced himself and I'm glad that he was forthright with that because I almost hung up on him and said that he was a pastor from Africa Listening to the sermons on our website now who knew that our church website could be used as an evangelistic tool and, of course, helping a church in Africa. And he's actually told me, he said, since I've been using the teaching that you have provided on your website, my church has been growing. So I'm really thrilled to know that somebody's found something useful to that. Well, you know, I was kind of skeptical as he, we began to trade information. I thought all that popped up was an unknown number. And I'm not real sure if this guy's fishing for money and so forth. And so uh, he sent me a text. Uh, that's definitely not an American number, let me tell you. It came up on my phone. And without thinking about it, I texted him back a brief message. And I'm thinking, I don't know how much that's going to cost me. I'm not sure if I've got unlimited international texting. But I am, I am investigating. He sent me some pictures. He uh, is, is ministering to orphans. He's got 40 six orphans in a compound there in Kenya and they're orphaned because of tragedy accident and a lot of families of course have orphan kids because of HIV and AIDS because it's rampant in that part so I'm continuing a dialogue with him now we're emailing because I know that's free it's not going to cost me anything uh, and and like to find out he did hint of something about needing funding but, uh, I, but he didn't send me any kind of contact information, and I'm hesitant to all of a sudden start throwing money at people uh, simply because we have to make sure of some accountability and those kind of things, and, and you can't do that just with one phone call or a text. But I do have some pictures of very beautiful children with plates of food, and he said feeding is a challenge for that, so... Mike Goodwin, EIM, uh, I'll probably be giving him a call to see if maybe they want to open that up and, and make a, a more formal uh, connection between the two of them if we're talking about feeding kids. Uh, I can't do that as efficiently as EIM can, so we'll see if we can maybe develop that. But I just thought you'd like to know what's going on this week, that uh, the footprint of Brister Baptist Church is not confined to Brister, even Arkansas, North Louisiana. People from all over are listening uh, to the sermons on the website. I know of some people in Cabot that told me they were listening. I know of some people down in Texas that said they're listening. Now somebody way over at Kenya. So I want to say thanks to Brother Jeremy, who when he came on board was able to do that because your pastor can't. 
But see, we get the right man on that, that fills in those gaps and was able to take care of that. And the website now is a very effective tool. People are hearing the gospel all over the world. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Would you stand as the scriptures read, please? There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. Likewise, Lazarus evil things. Now he is comforted. You are tormented. Beside all of this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. Those who would want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send them to my father's house. I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, no, Father Abraham, if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Let's pray together, please. Father, we thank you for your word and its clarity. We thank you for Jesus Christ and his honest message to mankind. We ask, Father, you would send your message through this parable to our hearts, to our church, to our community. Help us, Father, to gain the reality of what was said here. We ask that we wouldn't miss a detail. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Very familiar passage of scripture. Anyone who's been at church for any length of time, it's one of the most familiar of the parables. I want us to look at a couple of things here. First of all, I want us to look at the obvious setting. And there's three things to look at here. The obvious setting, and this is pretty much where the whole framework of preaching on this parable comes to play, but we're going to go from here to something a little deeper. First of all, you have two different life situations, and that is really the glaring part of this parable, how different these two men are. First of all, you have the rich man. And you have this man whose life situation is defined by what he wore. It said he was clothed with purple and fine linen. Now this word purple is important because it doesn't mean that he just simply liked the color purple. The color purple, purple dye at that particular time was very expensive to make. It was obscenely expensive how costly it was to dye a garment purple. So if someone wore a purple garment, that meant they had lots of money. They had just untold amounts of money and Purple was always reserved for somebody of status, royalty. So we know the fact that he was clothed with 
purple meant that not only was he very wealthy, but the fact that he was clothed with purple identified him to anyone who saw him. He was somebody. He was somebody very important. He was somebody with a lot of power, a lot of prestige, a lot of authority. He held undoubtedly a high office in the land. We see he was a rich man by what he ate. He fared or feasted sumptuously every single day. The average Jewish person ate meat only rarely. Well-to-do Jewish people ate meat about once a week. Couldn't afford it. He feasted sumptuously every day. The word feast, that's something that's reserved for a holiday. He lived like a holiday every single day. And where did he live? Well, he had a big house. How do we see that? You got to look at the details. Where was Lazarus laid? It didn't say it was laid at his front door. It said it was laid at his gate. This man had a gate and a courtyard. Then he had the house. He had a huge house. He was rich, powerful, well-to-do in every sense of the word. Then there was Lazarus. There could have been no other person on the planet that was further away from this life situation than Lazarus. We see, of course, says at Lazarus, there was a certain beggar. We know he was poor because he was a beggar. We know, of course, somehow, some way, he was in such squalid condition, he counted it a bonus if he'd get a crumb off of the rich man's table. And here's how the wealthy lived. They, of course, had no eating utensils, so they ate all this meat with the hands. Sounds like barbecue, doesn't it? You know, I go to a barbecue place, and you know what they give you? They give you one of those little towelettes because your hands just get all, it's, it's wonderful, you know, your hands just get all that grease on them. They were so well-to-do, they would wipe their hands on bread and throw it on the floor. Bread was their napkins, and they would throw it on the floor. And the rich man was saying, if I could only have the trash that he's throwing away, the, the poor man, Lazarus, if I could only have the trash that this guy's throwing away, then, then I could make it. So we understand he was poor. He was also sick. It says he was full of sores. He was disgusting. He was disgusting to look at. He had sores all over him. You ever notice, if you watch television, they, they're now coming out with new shingles medication, and they, they want to show you how shingles look on television. So they, they, on a the big full screen, if you've got a big screen TV, it's even worse. Isn't it? I mean, you see this on there. This man was full of that. He may have even had the shingles. Don't know about that. But he was so very sick. And also, he was paralyzed. How do you catch that? It said he was laid at the gate. He was crippled in some way. He didn't drag himself up to the gate, hopefully to get some of the rich man's refuse. He was laid there. He was in such squalid condition he couldn't defend himself. Now we see this passage of scripture that the dogs came and licked his sword and we say, oh, how sweet. How wonderful it is. Have a little puppy to come and, and give you uh, 
uh, comfort. It wasn't a puppy. It wasn't a pet. It was the wild, mangy, mongrel dogs that ran through the street. And they were frightening. And here they come. They're coming up to Lazarus. He can't defend himself. And they lick his sores. Now, you know, when you've got a wild dog coming to lick your sore, there's about that much difference between licking your sore and eating you for lunch, right? He couldn't defend himself. He lived in a day of, of horror, not knowing how friendly the dogs were. So we understand this man was totally as far off the scale different than the rich man who is clothed with purple and feasted every day. Yep, the obvious setting is two different life situations, but oh, there's one great equalizer. They both died. No matter how different they were and what advantages this man had in the big house, there was one thing he had to do just like the poorest of the poor. <clears throat> he died. Proverbs chapter 22 verse 2, the rich and poor meet together. The Lord's the maker of them all. Job chapter 30 verse 23, he said, I'll come to death to the house appointed for all living. Not just for the unfortunate, for all living. The one great equalizer. We come here, we're all different. But one thing we will all experience, we're all going to die. It's coming. It's coming. And it's a reality we must at least acknowledge. We cannot ignore it, neglect it, deny the reality of it. Then after death, we have two totally different destinations. And that's the framework of this parable. First of all, it says, So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Now this term Abraham's bosom was very well known to the Jewish people. And that was a term that was reserved for heaven. Because how much better could it be for the patriarch Abraham to greet you with a hug as his best friend. To them it's like it couldn't get any better than that. And he said he was, he was up there standing beside Abraham. Now no doubt, no doubt, this wealthy man knew a lot of important people and he was one, but nobody was as important as Abraham. So we understand this is a place, of course, of company. He was with Abraham. And of course, it was a metaphor for God's presence in heaven. This is a place of comfort. Verse 25 says, now he is comforted. And when we talk about heaven, that's one thing that is readily apparent. There's a lot we don't know about heaven. But the one thing that's apparent in all of the statements concerning heaven, it is a place where we are comforted. Of course, Abraham's bosom was a metaphor for heaven. New Jerusalem is another metaphor that's used in the book of Revelation. And what's it say about New Jerusalem? God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. There's no more crying, no more death, no more pain. So we understand he was comforted. And we understand he is eternally safe. Now we, we see this great goal fixed 
in, in a, another application. But what did Abraham say? He said, there is absolutely no way that Lazarus is going anywhere. He's here to stay. He's here to stay. He, he can't go anywhere. There's no way he's out of here. And then we have the rich man died and was buried and being in torments in Hades. Now, if you got the King James Version, it says hell. And there's other versions that say hell. What are we talking about? Because there is a, a different word here. Hades and the Hebrew word Sheol and Gehenna all describe this place called hell. It's just a matter of timing. Hades is where those go that wait final judgment. That is we see in, in the book of the Revelation. But this final judgment has nothing to do with maybe I'm getting out of here. It's all the same word. Hades, Sheol, Gehenna, hell. It's all hell. This destination is irrevocable at the moment of death. Regardless of what word is used, it's irrevocable. It's irreversible at the moment of death. And this destination is unspeakably horrible. The word torment is used four times in this parable alone. Flame is used and separation is used. So we understand Jesus in mentioning this parable covers a lot of theological truths. But the theological truth that comes through loud and clear is this. Hell is real. Hell is the destination that's irrevocable at the time of death. Hell is awful. Hell is torment. That's the obvious setting. But now let's look at the often overlooked. There's some things that are often overlooked in here. That's what we want to look at here and get some of the main lessons from this parable. First of all, the often overlooked is the reason. Why was this man in hell? Well, a casual glance at this says, well, we know why he's in hell. It's because he was rich. He was one of these rich, snooty, rich guys. Look at him over there. He received all this good stuff while everybody else was not receiving stuff, so it's karma. It's karma. So he gets his payback right now because he was all this rich things. No. Let me say this because we had to turn that corner around. Some people may read this parable and say, well, <laughs> I don't have to worry about hell because I'm a long way from rich. So they think because they are not rich or they're having a hard time financially and they don't wear purple and feast every day, there's no way I'm going to hell because I'm just an old poor boy from down in the country. Let me tell you, poverty is not a badge of noble character. And for some reason, we think just because maybe we have it hard or bad or somebody just, oh, poor boy, they must be a, a pretty good old guy. Absolutely not. I have seen some of the meanest, most despicable, ungodly, greediest, most dishonest people that I've ever run into are living in poverty. Well, that, that's judgment, isn't it? Absolutely not. I'm just calling it like it is, like I've seen it, and like they treat other people. Poverty is not a badge of godliness, and let us never 
confuse that. Just because someone within the ranks of the poor does not mean they'll be okay and get a free ride somehow spiritually. Not going to happen. The rich man knows why he's there. And he says it. See, that's where we often overlook that. And we have to get to the reason. You see, he sees what's going on and he has a special request. He said, well, since I'm not going anywhere, you got to do something. I want you to do something spectacular. I want you to do something off the chart because I've got five brothers and I want you to send Lazarus to testify to them. Now that word testify means to witness to them with a view of warning. You've got to warn them. You've got to stop them. And what does he say? He says, I beg you, Father, he would send him to my father's house. I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets. Let him hear him. Verse 30, look close. He said, no, Father Abraham, if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. You've got to warn them so they don't come here. You've got to run and do something special so they'll do what? So they will repent. You know, he doesn't say, you've got to send Lazarus to my brothers and tell them, you better get rid of all that money, man. It, it will take you down. You better sell all you got, get everything to the poor. You better be a little bit nicer. You need to go to church a little bit more. He didn't say all that. He said, you need to send somebody to my brothers and you tell them to repent or they'll come to this place of torment. Repentance. Repentance. What is repentance? I mean, this man says, unless they repent, they're coming to see me and I don't want them here. Repentance is to see our sin as it is and turn from it to God. That's repentance. Now, sometimes we think repentance is kind of like regret. Like we get caught, and you see that a lot. Somebody going on with some embezzling scam or something, or some other sort of crime or criminal activity, and finally they get caught, and oh, man, they just regret that. <laughs> that's not repentance. That's regret. Repentance is when you turn from sin, and when you make a 180 from sin, who are you looking at? God. That's what repentance is all about. You see, Jesus preached it from the very start. It says in Mark chapter 1 that Jesus came on the scene and said, repent and believe the gospel. That was the core message of Jesus Christ when he started preaching the kingdom of God. The first word out of his mouth is you repent, you turn around and preach the gospel. And he preached it until the great commission. On the day of ascension, you know what the book of Luke says? He records the word of Christ that he told his disciples that repentance and remission of sin be preached among all nations. Did you catch that? What was the first word? You better be sure and tell them to repent. Jesus Christ giving the message to the church that the message of the church to today's generation is repentance. To turn to God from, from sin. Make a 180 and turn straight to God. And all in between 
Jesus spoke about repentance. There's a detail I want to notice that underlines exactly what we're speaking of in this parable, lest anyone still misunderstood the reason of this man's problem in Luke chapter 13, verse 1, just about a page back from where you are. Luke chapter 13, verse 1. There were present that season some who told him about the Galilean whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they did such things? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Did you hear that one? Unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. What's the remedy for this situation? Repentance. Are those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think they were sinners worse than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Two times, what does Jesus say? Unless you repent, you will perish. From the very start to the very end of his ministry and in between, Jesus spoke of repentance. And now... Here's the rich man lifting up his eyes, and he said, if you'll do something special, they'll repent. And I want you to do that because unless they repent, they're coming here. There's absolutely no way it can be any clearer. Repent or perish. But now let's look in the remedy. The remedy. Notice what he says. You've got to do something special. Over the top. Send Lazarus. That's as bizarre as it gets because you've got to get their attention and do something spectacular so they won't come here. But notice what Abraham says. And I know this is the words of Abraham, but ultimately it's the words of Jesus Christ as he quotes Abraham. Remember, this is all in red letters. Jesus is telling the story. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, if one goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. He said them, to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, they'll not pay attention to any spectacular. What is the remedy? The remedy and the full message of repentance is found in the prophets. Moses and the prophets. Moses and the prophets was another word for, another expression for this. Moses, the law, the prophets. And we'll see what they were all about here in just a few minutes. But you see, Abraham said, they have everything they need to turn to God in the scriptures. Everything. God has given them more than enough so that they can repent. And so we understand this rich man ignored all this while he was alive. He's saying, wait a minute. That's kind of jumping to some conclusions here about saying this rich man ignored God's word and that's why he's in hell and he never did repent. How do you get that? Well, it's obvious. There are some things mentioned about his behavior that states he ignored God's word as 
distinctly as anyone can. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 15. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 7. And as we read here, somebody is going to come to mind. You're going to think of somebody. Who are we thinking about when we read this? Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 7. If there is among you a poor man of your brethren with any of the gates of your land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother. You will open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. Hmm. Who does that remind us of? There was a poor man laid at his gate full of sores, and the only people who ever showed, or only living thing that showed him any attention were the dogs. Somebody came and laid him there, but what did they do? They left. They left. And it's pretty obvious that he was craving the crumbs from the rich man's table. The rich man ignored this man. But not only did he ignore this man, he ignored God's word. He ignored God's word because God's word specifically says, you open your hand to the poor, as did his forefathers ignore God's word. Because it specifically says in verse 9, beware lest... There be a wicked thought in your heart saying the seventh year, the year of release is at hand. Now, what business is all this? Back up to verse 1. At the end of every seven years, you shall get a release of debts. And this is the form of release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it and not required of his neighbor nor his brother because it is called the Lord's release. Here were the rules. And this is what God put in place so you wouldn't have a man like this that was so absolutely poor that he just couldn't, he wanted to be fed by the napkins that the rich man threw away. Every seventh year, every seventh year, those who had lent money to people who were in a hardship forgave the debt. Every 50th year, called the year of Jubilee, every 50th year, if I had to leverage my forefather's land. Because, you know, everybody got their own share of the inheritance. And every tribe and, and every clan of the children of Israel got their share of the inheritance. But God knew sometimes people get in a bad way. And then there are other people who take advantage of this bad way. And that's what was happening. And so you had these wealthy people that were leveraging other people's land and they were just gathering up vast amounts of land where everybody else had absolutely nothing, nowhere even to live. And God said, this is not going to happen. Every 50th year, the land goes back to the families that I gave it to at the first place. And listen to this. If the Hebrew people through the centuries had lived according to God's word, Lazarus would have never been laid at his gate in such a poor condition. You see, what happened is through the years, people began to ignore God's law, so God sent prophets to preach against that. And the very thing that Lazarus uh, was, was experiencing, the prophets spoke about. And the very thing the rich man was doing, the prophets warned them about. But they did not listen. You see, Lazarus 
was at his gate because the rich man ignored the prophets of his life and he's ignoring them now. You know what he says? I got no business with the prophets. I don't want you to... They're ineffective, Lord. You've got to do something else. There's something better than the prophets. There's something better than God's Word. There's something better than this. And if God would just do something different than this, maybe I would listen. But this wasn't enough. I ignored this, and it's this fault why I'm where I am. And Jesus said, absolutely not. You see, there's something better than the spectacular. And that's something better, the words of the prophets. The words of the prophets. And he said, let them hear them. I want us to look just for a few minutes to the importance of the prophets. The prophets are better than the spectacular. The prophets are enough, Jesus said, more than enough for people to see their condition and turn to God. Let's look at the importance of the prophets. Jesus highly regarded the prophets to clarify and to define his mission and his purpose. You're still in the book of Luke. Look in verse 18, verse 31. Luke chapter 18, verse 31. He took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. Did you catch that? Let me explain some things to you and let me clarify what you're about to see. If you'll just go back to the prophets and read what they had to say, all of this will make sense. He will be delivered to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him. The third day he will rise again. None of this makes any sense unless you read the prophets. But if you'll read the prophets, it'll all be clear. And it'll all make sense. In times of teaching, Jesus relied on the prophets. In times of crisis, Jesus reminded them of the prophets. When he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26, it says, this is Jesus' words, all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets would be fulfilled. Now can you imagine in the middle of all this chaos, he said, uh-uh guys, remember the prophets. And they'll put this all into perspective. And then, for a time of review, Jesus had to shake them back to reality by referring to the prophets. You're still in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 24, verse 25, just a few pages over. This is after the resurrection. They hadn't seen Jesus yet. They had seen the crucifixion. They had seen... Of course, the days without Jesus Christ. Now they're hearing of some things that went on at the tomb and they don't understand anything. So Jesus runs up against some guys on the Emmaus Road and he's trying to explain some things to them. And notice how he makes sure that they understand it in verse 25. He said, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that who? The prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and into his glory? Look in verse 27. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expanded to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You notice he, what he did not do to put it in perspective? Let me remind you of the miracles. You, you saw all the fantastic stuff that Jesus did. Don't you think that that should put this into perspective? Let me, let me remind you of all the people that followed. You remember all the, the, the people on the hill, the 5,000 people he fed? Look how popular he was. 
Absolutely not. He said, let me put it in perspective. We're going back to the prophets and see what they said about Jesus Christ. In verse 44, he says to the disciples, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that in all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. There are those prophets again. Jesus held them in high regard. The gospel writers, of course, followed suits. In the book of John, chapter, uh, uh, in the book of John, chapter 1, verse 45, he records Philip's words, We have found him of whom the prophets have spoken. That's how John introduces Jesus Christ. Here's the man the prophets spoke about. In the book of John, eight times the word fulfilled is used. In the book of Matthew, the word fulfilled is used 15 times. And the prophets are specifically mentioned. In the book of Matthew, there are 129 Old Testament references. Most of them are from the prophets. You think the gospel writers want to clarify the mission of Jesus Christ? What do they do? They looked at the prophets. Peter refers to them to add power to his preaching. Look in verse, uh, chapter 3 of the book of Acts, verse 18, and this is where we're about to come full circle. Have to pay attention to this. This is where we come full circle to the rich man in hell. Peter is preaching in Jerusalem. He has a crowd gathered up, and he says this. In Acts chapter 3, verse 18, those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled. Repent because of this and be converted. That's what that word uh, therefore means. Repent because of this. Isn't that something? Peter adds power to his preaching and he says, here's what the prophet said. Repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. The time of refreshing to come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before. Isn't that something? Of all the things that he uses to nail down his preaching, he said, you remember what the prophet said, and because of this, you need to repent. You need to repent. Now Paul adds some sharp focus. We're still coming around. Full circle of this word repentance. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God and the sinfulness of man being revealed by the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and own all who believe there is no difference for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That word for refers back to something. And this, this position that all have sinned, sinned and come short of the glory of God, where was that established? In the prophets. In the prophets. The prophets are the ones who called sin what it is. 
When Jesus talked about the prophets to the Pharisees and he spoke concerning them and their message, he said this in Luke chapter 16, verse 15, what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to God. Now what did he mean to that? He meant men tend to esteem and lightly regard and even highly regard some activities that they think are okay or even all right or even desirable and they're an abomination to God. And you know what? The prophets were the ones who were bold enough and step up and preach to their culture and their generation what you are doing is sin. Even if it's your favorite activity, sin is still sin. See, the prophets were called by one Bible scholar the most disturbing people who have ever lived. And they were disturbing. They were told to go back to their hometown. They were called the troublers of Israel. They were called troublemakers because they would come and the activities that were so highly esteemed in their culture and in their generation, you'll find them preaching on and they're calling it what? Sin. People do not like their favorite activity called sin. So therefore the prophets were, were unpopular. They preached against adultery. They preach against adultery even though it was highly esteemed and even acceptable in Jewish society. They preach against living together out of marriage. They called it sin. Can you imagine a prophet today calling it sin? It's celebrated in the pop culture. It is accepted in church families. Sin is still sin and living together out of marriage is still sin. And the prophets preached against that. The prophets preached against drunkenness. Yes, drunkenness is a sin, and they preached against it regular. Neglect of God's Sabbath, sin. Neglect of God's worship, sin. Playing church with worship, sin. Neglecting the poor, sin. Violence, sin. Greed, sin. Preoccupation with appearance, sin. Preoccupation with pleasure, sin. All of these things we have accepted in American culture and the prophets came through the centuries and they said sin is always sin no matter what else we call it. And that's why they were called the most disturbing people who ever lived because sometimes a culture needs to be disturbed and a culture needs to be confronted. And the prophets preached against it. But now it doesn't stop there. Because back up to Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. You know, we read over that, and there's a detail that we've missed, we just kind of missed for all, all these years. He said, I'm separated to the gospel of Christ, which God foretold by his prophets. Did you catch that? The prophets, they didn't just preach against sin. They told the good news that redemption's available through Jesus Christ. Isn't that what Jesus said? Jesus said, the prophets will tell you that I'm coming to die. And to be raised in the third day. And it makes all the sense in the world when you read the prophets. The prophets said sin is sin. And here's the thing about it. You'll never have a person to repent of sin 
till they realize what they're doing is sin. And if what they're doing is called something else by their popular culture, they'll never come to the point of repentance because it's all okay because everybody's doing it because I see it on television. I hear about it in the music. It's all all right because it seems that America seems to have embraced this. Sin still sin regardless of what celebrity, athlete, or country calls it something else. And until we call it sin, there's no repentance happening. We need to see it for what it is. So the prophets came and they were very unattractive in their preaching. But oh, with the reality of sin and its consequences, there was always the remedy of forgiveness and mercy with God. That's what they preached. That's what they preached. So we're coming back full circle. What did the rich the man want? He said, you've got to tell my brothers so they'll repent. And Jesus, through the mouth of Abraham, said, they have the prophets. There's where you'll find the answer to where you are. So we come full circle, and here's where we close. The musicians are coming forward. What, what is all this that's in this passage of Scripture? Number one, death is coming to all of us. Death is coming to all of us. Now, we like to think that that's a reserve for way on over when we get to be old. But I think we've had enough experience, even in recent weeks, that you don't have to be old to die. Death's coming. Secondly, repent or you perish after death. There's no other way to place this truth. Repent or perish. We're all sinners, lost. Sin is horrible. Hell is real. And it's final and it's awful. And sin will send us all there. But the prophets predicted one other thing, the gospel. You know what the gospel means? Good news. And Paul said, I came to preach the good news that the prophets told you too. And they told you this was coming. And that good news is in Jesus Christ died to pay the awful sin for the awful, the awful price for the awful sin so that we could live. Now I'm going to ask, have you repented? Have you turned from sin and turned to God? The only way you're going to do that is acknowledge sin for what it is and realize I have it in my life. You see, there's enough here to tell us what we need to do. And there's one word in a passage of scripture that we read they are without excuse. There are no excuses because we've had ample warning.